Welcome to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. In this program, you'll hear fascinating stories from science, technology, finance, and the arts. Learn how dynamic individuals created their paths to success and the wealth intersections that occurred. It's where you might just find the answers on how you can pursue your passion while creating the necessary foundation to build personal wealth. And now, here is Megan Gorman. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of The Wealth Intersection. I'm Megan Gorman, and I'm thrilled that you're here. When we talk about wealth in America, you can't not talk about health and health care. And there's probably no bigger topic out there today that impacts most Americans. Now, it's really easy to think about health and wealth and say, well, if you don't have a lot of money, you might not have good health. And if you have a lot of money, you'll have great health. But the truth is, it's like a graduated scale in the United States, and that every step on the level of the economic ladder, you end up being healthier than the rung below you. And so one of the things that is happening in wealth today is that we're having a greater focus on longevity. Longevity planning is taking you know, center stage, and groups like the Center on Aging and the Stanford Center on Longevity are encouraging Americans to focus on this. And if you think about it, it's not a surprise. Back in the 1900s, any baby born in the United States in 1900 had a very low likelihood of not seeing age 50. Yet today, in 2019, the average U.S. life expectancy is almost 79 years of age. So as we talk about health, longevity, and wealth, I'm really excited about today's guest, Dr. Jorge Rodriguez. Dr. Jorge is a medical doctor with a specialization in internal medicine and a gastroenterologist. He was born in Cuba, but raised in Miami and New York City, and he graduated from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine with honors. He obtained his specialty in internal medicine at Tulane University in New Orleans and his subspecialty in gastroenterologists at Baylor Medical Center in Dallas. Since then, he's developed an international reputation as a leader in internal medicine and a researcher in hepatitis C and HIV therapies. He's the proud author of two best-selling books, The Acid Reflux Solution and The Diabetes Solution, and you may have seen him as a medical expert on a variety of shows ranging from The View to The Doctors to CNN. Let's welcome Dr. Jorge Rodriguez. Hi, Megan. How are you doing? I'm great, Jorge. Thanks for joining me here oh today in Los Angeles. It's, it's uh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm very you know, glad that you have this podcast. Very proud of you. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. So look, I want to talk about longevity in the first part of the show today. And, you know, you've been in the medical business for years. You've seen lots of different patients, lots of different things happen. In fact, I would argue you probably have had three careers in medicine with the different types of issues patients have faced over the time. And, you know, when we think about longevity, one of the things I love is the Stanford Center on Longevity says, longevity is about being physically fit, mentally sharp, and financially secure. So as you see patients on a daily basis, basis, how are we doing as a whole, as Americans? I don't think we're doing well. I mean, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're doing well at all. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned those three things because when you usually tell or talk about longevity to someone, they think that that means solely just living longer. And I guess the technical definition is that you know that longevity is about living longer. So what we're seeing, I mean, they're like, yeah, what we're what we're seeing is that. People are definitely living longer, but are they living better and are they living more healthily? And I would argue that they're not. So what I'm seeing is people that are living to a longer age, so in their 70s, 80s, 90s, it's not unusual, but with a lot more diseases and a lot more ailments. And brings up a few questions. One is, A, do we really want to live to an age where we are incapacitated. I think most people would say no. No, I think most people would say no, but what I find is that that isn't usually the case. I think most young people that are not at that age would say no. But when you get closer to that age, you would say yes. (laughs) Really? Absolutely, which is why you find people hanging on to dear life, which is why probably um, the vast majority of health dollars are spent on the last 25% of life. Because... At the end of the day, most people don't want to die. So they go through all these extreme treatments or therapies to stay alive. And I find that no matter what, listen, even in the AIDS epidemic, Mm -hmm. all these people that were very cavalier and said, listen, I don't want to die that way and I want to be euthanized. When presented with the option of not seeking treatment and seeking treatment, most people, if not 90% of people, end up seeking treatment. The same thing with cancer and chemotherapy. So looking at this in almost like a sociological way as to how we're going to spend our health dollars because they're limited, I think we need to put more emphasis on prevention and we need to be more realistic about what death and illness really is because we are going to live longer. So uh, I'm seeing people living longer but I'm not necessarily seeing people living a more healthy life as they get older. Or they're not living a well-lived life after a certain period of time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We're, we're seeing people um, that are more incapacitated by illnesses, which happen in the elderly, like heart disease, um, diabetes, uh, arthritis, dementia. You know, it's a big one. Right. And since the family unit is no longer what it was... Um, as we get older, who's going to take care of us? And that comes right into what, what you're discussing, which is about the finances of getting older right. in America. Right. You know, are we planning for it? Well, do you see patients planning for it? Are patients coming to you with the right questions early on? And then are they asking you, look, should I be pushing to live longer or should I be pushing to live better? Yeah. Um, answer to your first question. No, I don't absolutely do not see people coming up with that, coming to me with that question at all. Healthcare in America, in my opinion, is about putting out fires and not about planning. So people come to doctors when? When they are sick and they want something done. Most people do not come to doctors to prevent disease or to get a wellness check. Right. You know, and that's where we need to really 
emphasize it for many reasons. Politically, we spend less money on health. Uh, socially, it puts things in perspective as to what we should be doing. I mean, just take yourself, for instance, or anybody else. When do you, maybe you go to a doctor every year for a physical? I'm horrible. You okay. would be horrified. So no, I wouldn't be horrified. <laughs> it's it's. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I mean, doctor, physician, heal thyself. Right. We go when we have a cold, when we have a flu, when we have an ache, when we have a fever. And that's what we need to change. So what you're saying is, like in personal finance, planning for the future, what really people should be doing is using time with their doctor to plan for longevity. Absolutely. But, Abs- do, but does the medical system and the healthcare system and the insurance system, does that al- is that allowed in it? I mean, does it really work with the current system today? Well, anything is allowed, but does it work with the current system today? No, absolutely not. Why not? You tell me. <laughs> I mean, I, tell, I have my opinion, and you know I don't lack opinions, right? right? Um, I look right now at the Democratic debates, and everybody's talking about Medicare for all. Yep. I don't know if that's the right solution or not. I think everybody should have health care, all right, for the simple reason that everybody deserves to be as healthy as possible. But if you want to be selfish, we're not isolated anymore. So you want to make sure that the person you're working with, mm-hmm. right, or that the person that is serving you doesn't have tuberculosis, right? right. And right. Doesn't, have some, doesn't have Ebola, doesn't have some contagious disease. So right now, with travel the way it is and communication, you're not isolated. You want to make sure that everybody around you, if you have kids, you want to make sure that the other kids are not giving them measles, right? right? So we want everybody to be healthy. So... Do most insurance companies provide for preventive health? No. Do most insurance companies make the patient aware like, hey, listen, you may live to be 100. Mm-hmm. All right? Are you planning for that? First of all, it's really not their business. You know, in a way, and some skeptics would say, most insurance companies, you know, want you to die early because it's cheaper that way. <laughs> Right? That it's true. You know, it's an actuarial table may say, eh, we don't want them living that long. Right, right. You know? Going at like 73, it's perfect. Yeah. It, yeah. It, uh, supposedly, not, not for me, uh, as long as I have my faculties about me. So I think it is up to the individual to realize that they may very well live to be 100. Yep. Which brings up a few questions. One is, how long do you want to work? This is true, yes. Right? And do you have enough money invested or saved up so that when you stop working right you can continue living and not only that it brings up the medical issues who's going to take care of you yep where are you going to be taken care of you know what is your end of life uh plan i mean who's going to be making that decision if you can't and those are tough questions that people don't we don't want to talk about that in america we don't know and and i think you know when I first got into the wealth business almost 20 years ago, we would run long-term analysis to the late 80s. And then we crossed 90. And today we do it to 100. And what is always so sort of shocking of the whole thing about the whole thing is most people stop and say, I'm not going to live to 100. And then you actually say, well, actually, if you look at the statistics in a married couple, whether it's gay, straight, lesbian couple, one of you has a chance to making making it past age 90. Absolutely. And, and that's really where they, they... People almost are resistant to that idea. They're like, look, it, it didn't happen with my parents. I'm not going to do it now. So 
if you're doing the financial planning to make it to 100, what would you tell people they should be doing for their health planning to make it to 100? Um, I think, well, first of all, they need to know what their health is, meaning you need to know what may be taking you out in the future. I hate to put it so bluntly. All right, so do you have heart disease? Do you have a disabling form of arthritis? Do you have some sort of long-term illness? First of all, you need to know that because that is going to drain your pocketbook more than if you're just an otherwise healthy person. So you need to know where you're starting from to know where you're going as you get older. So that, yeah, you need to assess. That's the first thing that you need to know. So here's the question for you. The medical business has changed so much over the past 30 years. And one of the things that has become, I would say, more common in the high net worth space is the concierge doctor. Mm. Now, those practices have their pluses and minuses. But could you make the argument that a concierge doctor where you pay a fee, you have access to the doctor, it's almost like having access to a club, where you get physicals and sort of 24-7 access to your doctor is a better tool for longevity. I'm not saying it's a good thing for the doctor. I'm just asking for longevity planning. Is concierge doctors the way to go? All right. So I don't know if you know this, but I had a concierge practice for five years. I did. In Newport Beach. And yeah, I hated it. All right. Uh, And I'll tell you why. Because... A lot of patients just felt that basically it was a shopping network, right? And that you had someone that had to do what you want. So here's the main, here is the main slogan to take home. Doctors are not here to do what you want. Doctors are here to do what you need. Okay. Whether you, whether you see that or not. All right. It's all about experience. So if having a concierge doctor gives you access to medical care in a more, rapid and inclusive way, yes, then that will probably help your longevity. And the concierge practice that we had guaranteed you a physical examination, which I think is very valuable. You may be very surprised to find that, for Ameri- for example, now the American College of Internal Medicine doesn't even recommend physical examinations because in their analysis, they have found that getting physical examinations doesn't really prolong life. Really? What they're finding is that maybe checking your cholesterol provides life. If you're of a certain age, getting mammograms if you're a woman. They don't even recommend now uh, necessarily prostate-level tests for patients. Now, they're looking at it in a very general cost-effective way. They're looking at it in the population as a whole. So if you do a 1,000 tests, how many lives are you going to save based on how much money are you going to spend? Got it? Yep. So, however, if you have the money, right, and you get prostate cancer and that blood test would have found it, then it's 100% for you. So my point is it may not be cost effective in the population as a whole, but probably having private care would probably increase your longevity. Okay. Because you're doing a lot, you're you're throwing a lot of darts at the board and some of them may land. Okay. But, but... I think what you're saying is there is some benefits to the concierge practices, but if you are... There, there's some benefit to having access to health care, okay. whether it's concierge or not. And if you're an average American and you're sitting here listening to saying, I can't get into a practice like that, or I can't get that type of response from my doctor, what should I be doing? 
sounds like the cornerstone for longevity planning is making a commitment to every year getting a physical and start measuring where you are. It it wouldn't hurt, but really I look at the problem as, as a much larger social problem. Okay. All right, because one of the main reasons that people don't go to doctors and that people don't get tests done is the expense that they have when they go to doctors, even if they have insurance. There's still copay. There's still copayments for you know out of pocket you know expenses that you haven't met. So one of the reasons people don't go to doctors, or I would say one of the majority of them, besides the fact that we're scary to a lot of people, yeah, is are the finances. Definitely the finances. So how can you improve that? You can improve that by a having more money, right? <laughs> you can almost improve almost anything by having more money. Um, but I really do think that people need to start getting socially and politically aware. And that's one of the reasons I believe that there needs to have access to health care for everybody so that people are not hesitant to go to the doctor. Now, I would. one of the trends that we're seeing right now is the entrance of corporations into healthcare. So, so what I mean by this is it is now not uncommon when you work at a Fortune 500 company that you have a medical clinic on site and that that medical clinic is not just there to deal with the fact that you might get a cold during the workday, but to provide physicals, but to provide consistent healthcare to the employee population. Do you think that that is a benefit going forward for a lot of people to look towards medical clinics that are tied to their employers? Or is that just sort of a Band-Aid? You know what? What what I've seen is a Band-Aid. However, if the model is such where people not only go there just for the cold during the day, but if if that is their primary healthcare provider and they use them all the time, then that's where I think it's good. I see a lot of people that work for different corporations. I mean, this is a entertainment town here in LA. So a lot of the bigger studios provide people with in-house clinics, and they also provide them with wellness examinations. However, they send that back to their primary care doctor, i.e. me or someone like me, to still take care of that person. Okay. So, so what are they doing? They're doing a few good things. They're making people get checked up and make sure that their cholesterol and their sugar and stuff like that is normal. So basically, they're creating an awareness. But are they actually taking care of people other than the colds and flus? No, they're not. And if they were able to provide like real clinics to people, corporations, I think that'd be great. I think that'd be a great idea. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit here because you do work with a lot of patients that have longevity mm-hmm. and you yourself specialize in the gut. I do. You t- so talk to me about where do you see as people age? Is there sort of a, a sweet spot where it's sort of the tipping point where a group, you know, a lot of patients start to have issues but the patients who have taken care of themselves over the years have done better? Yeah. Um, probably the tipping point is somewhere around 50 years old. Oh, wow. I was not expecting you to say that young. Yeah. I always sort of joke at 70. No. 
<laughs> if, if you haven't done something about it by the, by the time you're 70, it's it's too late, probably. That's why most screening tests, like colonoscopies, yeah. and now they're even recommended at 45 earlier. Um, because if you want to catch something and do something about it, it, it needs to be when you're young. Uh, the same thing with you know getting breast you know checking for breast cancer and checking for all that so no 70 is already a little too late you know to do the cake is baked at that point (laughs) the cake is baked and it's been eaten part of it as a matter of fact some screenings are recommended to stop at age 75 seriously seriously so what should you be doing then before 50 if 50 is sort of where you start to see the group the herd divide all right the first thing that you need to be doing before 50 is you need to be sure and i'm sorry anti-vaxxers but you better (laughs) listen up because this is the damn truth before 50 what you need to be what you need to do is to make sure that the vaccinations that are recommended that you're up to date on them you know, it's funny that you bring this up because I had to get some vaccinations for a trip. And one of the things they had me do was get my polio booster again. Yeah. They said, look, back in the 70s when they gave it to you, we thought it would last forever. Not not the case. Right. You need a booster. And that was shocking to me. Yeah. We, we, we need a booster on that. We need a booster sometimes on measles. And, you know, we're seeing an outbreak of measles. Um, there's something called herd immunity. Okay. So... If we are, we consider ourselves living in a herd of people, all right? <laughs> okay. If the majority of the herd is vaccinated, then chances are that herd is not going to get the disease. But as less and less people in the herd get vaccinated, that herd is much more susceptible to disease. So as well-meaning but misinformed people do not vaccinate their children... You and I are at greater risk, so we need to be much more vigilant that our vaccinations are up to date. And vaccinations, for example, like the HPV vaccine, super important, all right, because it prevents cervical cancer in women, um, anal cancer in almost everybody, uh, hepatitis A and B vaccine in the correct population, all right, can prevent cirrhosis. Uh, as we get older, around 60, the shingles vaccine, yes. all right, a good friend of mine, all right, didn't get the pneumonia vaccine, and she got a really bad case of pneumonia, all right, because somebody maybe wasn't paying attention that if you're a smoker, all right, you're much more susceptible to getting pneumonia. And by the way, the number one thing, the number one thing that you can do to increase health by almost 12-fold is not smoke. 12-fold. Imagine making 12 times more money than you're making now. Well, that's that's a that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, and that's a big differential that not smoking or stopping smoking can make in your health. The so, number one so thing. So some of the basics are just basic building blocks that I think a lot of people take for granted. So vaccines, not smoking. Let's get into eating and exercise, because okay. I know you've spent a lot of time in research on using your diet to manage certain diseases, right. and in particular, diabetes right. um, and, and sort of intestinal irritation. Right. So can and I've that- also spent a lot of time eating. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? Haven't we all? So, so talk about this. I mean, should we... You know, right now, we're in this period of time where there's a lot of eating trends, right? The keto diet, vegan, plant-based, paleo. I mean, every time you turn around, and particularly here in Southern California, if you are not on an eating plan and an exercise plan, you're, th- they'll take away your driver's license because right. you're not a Californian then. Right, right, right. So, is there really 
something behind this? Um, the number one cause of death in the United States is heart disease. And heart disease directly correlates to obesity and to diabetes. Okay. All right? And high blood pressure, it all ties in. So the number one health issue that we have in this country is being overweight, of which I suffer in and out all the time. So I definitely can sympathize and empathize. So all diets, any diet that you go on is a diet that you will come off of eventually. All right? Got it. So all of them are fad diets. And trust me, I have tried everything. <laughs> you know I have. Yeah. Um, so I have two books. And I've wanted, and my, my uh, not my agent, but my publisher has said, you need to write a diet book. And I'm like, I, A, I feel like a hypocrite writing a diet book because I'm not in my optimal health. I'm certainly not what the majority of America is. Uh, and I don't think that there should be a diet book. There needs to be, we need to reshape the way we look at food. Listen, the keto diet is a starvation diet. That's what ketones are. Ketones are the byproducts of your body not getting carbohydrates, and they use muscle and fat. So the Scarsdale diet from 40 years ago, that's a keto diet. The Atkins diet, keto diet. All right, so yeah, keto. Everything old is new again. Yeah, so keto is definitely going to ramp you up to start losing weight. Where I think the big value in, in the keto fad is that it shows us that we don't eat, we don't need to eat as many carbohydrates as we now do. Mm -hmm. So I came back from a cruise, and what are you doing cruise, you eat? And I looked at myself and I'm like, Jesus, this is the fattest I've ever been, right? And I don't like to look to use euphemisms. I, right. You know, I, I grew up in New York, you know, in New Jersey. In New like Jersey. You. <laughs> you know, we're fat, you know, so let's just call it what it is. Exactly. You know, enough of this PC-ness. Um, and I went on like a modified keto and I tried to do one thing, which was basically be gentle with myself and not expect to lose everything overnight. And that gave me such a peace of mind that it didn't become a goal. Yeah. You know, and I ended up losing 15 pounds and I didn't sweat it. As a matter of fact, I almost was losing too much. Yeah. So I think the first thing you need to do is sort of like chill out the mind. But yes, America needs to lose weight and that would be one of the biggest things that we could do for our health and our longevity that and smoking and and it saves money it the end of the world because it helps money. the first of all from an economic standpoint it builds wealth but it also means you just have a fresher you know way of looking at life and i yeah. think it will help in all areas so I think we're, we're going to take a break right here, Dr. Jorge, but Great. we're going to pause for a moment. Join us in a few minutes where we talk to Dr. Jorge about his money story and being born in Cuba. And now for a break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. If you have a question or comment about the program, your money, or what it can do for you, please send an email to Megan at TheWealthIntersection.com. That's M-E-G-A-N at TheWealthIntersection.com. Now, back to the show. And I want to welcome you back to The Wealth Intersection. I'm Megan Gorman, and I'm here with our our guest, Dr. Jorge Rodriguez. And in our first part of the show, we've been talking about longevity, but I want to shift gears a bit here and sort of talk about Dr. Rodriguez and Dr. Jorge, because he's pretty popular on TV. You see him often on The View and The Doctors, but I think he has an amazing backstory. And so, Jorge... You were born somewhere really unique. Yeah, I was born in Cuba. And first of all, I love to talk about me. <laughs> my wife says that my favorite color is mirror, <laughs> which is not true. But so I was born in Cuba. I am a Cuban immigrant. And we came after a few years after Castro um, became the dictator in Cuba. And for all that people romanticize how Cuba is now, Cuba is a communist country where people like my parents, my father was a dentist, uh, in a communist country, you don't own anything. It belongs to the people. So therefore, people that were professionals or had more to lose, you know, that had succeeded in a capitalist system, fled, which is why everybody left Cuba, which is why my parents left Cuba. And our story is not unique, but it, it, it's, I get goosebumps just talking about it. So uh, my dad was imprisoned in Cuba during the Bay of Pigs because he wow. was very anti-Castro. And he finally was released without my mother even knowing where he was many months later. And he was able to fake some documents um, to say that he was coming to the U.S. for a dental meeting. And... The day that we went to the airport, and I am two and a half, my brother is six months old, and my parents are in their late 20s. Can you imagine? Uh, it must have been frightening. Can you I imagine? Mean, I, yeah. I mean, when I stop to think about that, it, it really almost makes me want to cry because they are at their peak. Yeah. My dad was a very successful dentist in their country, in, in their town. My mother had never worked a day in her life. You know, they came from very, you know, upper middle class, you know, people. They were country people, but, you know, their, their parents were ranchers and did very well. And so they go to the airport, and they wouldn't let my brother and I leave because we didn't have visas. 
So oh, right wow. there, my parents had to make the decision, Does do they stay? What happened? So they decided that my father would leave because he was the one that was in most imminent danger. And, and I mean, you're, that's absolutely frightening for both of them, but in particular, for, my mother. for your mother staying behind with two young children. Can you imagine never knowing if she was going to be able to leave and never knowing if she was going to see my dad again or anything like that? I mean, I, really, I came through this breakthrough in therapy once. Because <laughs> you don't stop to think about that, how fearful, I mean, how frightening that must be. And... Were, were there going to be repercussions? Because now they knew that you were going to leave the country because as soon as my dad landed here, he asked for political asylum. Right. So at that point, uh, my mother says that they came and they took what's called the inventory of what you had in your house because now it's owned by the government. And if when they find it, you finally get your visa, if you get it, and we did like six months later, if anything is missing, you go to jail because you just stole it from the government. Anyway, wow. so eventually everybody came over... Uh, God bless my parents because my father, you know, was working three jobs, none as a dentist. Well, I'm going to be honest. My dad would practice dentistry illegally from the back of his car. Seriously? Yes. In, in, in Miami? In Miami. Yeah. He, uh, and I'm assuming to other to immigrants. To other human immigrants who yeah. couldn't afford going to a dentist. So he had this little motor with a drill, and he would buy drill bits at a dental supply store, and on... The weekends, he would line up six or seven Cubans in somebody's house, and he'd work on them one by one by one. Or he would go to Lake Okeechobee to the sugar mills where a lot of Cubans were working, and he'd take care of them. And he'd come back with, like, all these damn, you know, brown sugar that we couldn't do anything with because that's how they pay him. Um, my mother... Which is sort of odd to pay your dentist in sugar. You'd work, you paid him in whatever you had. Right. Right? Uh, we had three foster kids whose parents, you know got them out of Cuba because they were afraid they were going to go into military service. My mother cleaned floors, whatever needed to be done. So whenever people tell me that um, America is not the land of opportunity, it is. You just have to work hard. Yeah. You just have to work hard. So so when you think back to those days, was there an early moment where you learned about money or was it just this entire experience? Yes, I learned that it is better to have it. <laughs> <laughs> But how did you learn it was better to have it? Well, Just well, listen, going through I, this experience? Going through this experience. I mean, here's the one thing that that's, you know, has to be ingrained in people. I really think that if you are born into a culture of failure and you don't see how you can succeed, you're bound to fail. Seriously. Mm-hmm. What I was, I never believed that. I would be anything but someone that who that would succeed because I saw that in my parents. You know, my dad went back to dental school. He went back to dental school in this country. In the United States. Hardly even knowing English. That man had a dictionary in one hand and a textbook in the other. In Detroit, Michigan. All right, here are these little white Cubans that have never seen snow in Detroit, Michigan <laughs> in the middle of 15 below degree weather in the middle of the 1969 race riots. Oh, wow. That woke me up to so much. And my dad, my dad had a lot of, uh, as we say, I don't know if I can say it, why not? Say it. Cojones. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Um, because when he, when he got his license finally and would move back to Miami, that man was an entrepreneur. And what I learned from my dad was that all you have to do is keep your eye on the prize and go for it. So he started his own practice, all right? He once saw this house. Um, and he said, I'm going to buy that house and build a medical building. 
I said, well, it's not for sale. How and old were you at this point? Probably around 12. Okay, so you, you knew I everything. Knew. Yeah, I knew everything. <laughs> and, and he goes, not yet. And seriously, he parked his car, knocked on the door, and made them an offer. And did they accept? They accepted. And a year later, he had built an office building, you know, where this house had stood. So, so he had vision. My dad had, had a lot of vision. My dad had a lot of vision. And that and that's what I think, obviously, that's necessary for success. That's one. Of, that's the first thing you need, yeah. right, is to, is to visualize something. Yeah. And then, short of that, but more, more importantly, you need to be able to implement. Yeah. So uh, I have a partner who is very different but very important for me because mm-hmm. I'm the vision guy. Yes. Right, and he's more the implementation person. Yes. Right, and I'm like, we're gonna do this. Wait, wait, let's see how we're gonna do it. Right. Which both are important. It is. You know, but what I learned from that is that you can do anything you want, right, as long as you have a clear vision of what it is that you want to accomplish, and that's the first thing. So that's what I learned. My dad became very, very successful, um, but of course, those days, you know. People actually paid for dental care with cash, you know, right. <laughs> as opposed world. to insurance. It's a it's a completely different world. Yeah. And look, most dental insurance doesn't cover much today. No, not at all. Most people don't realize that you get a cleaning. No, I'm spilling. I want to spill family secrets here. <laughs> I found out that my dad, right? They had this. We bought this huge house, and they had a, like a, probably a twenty by twenty foot cedar lined closet. And now I find for my brother, because I didn't know this, that my dad would remove panels of cedar. Yes. And he would hang inside, right, bags with like a hundred grand in cash. So that no, so I mean, that was, that's the old school thinking of when they came from Cuba. But it also explains, I mean, this is someone who ran in the middle of the night. Yeah. To escape. Right. I mean, the ability to have cash and liquidity. He learned the hard way. He learned the hard way, but it also brings... To the, I mean, whether you hid your, whether you bags of hundred grands in, in the closet, you know, in the wall, liquidity is something important because, and this is what you've taught me. And I'm not a great student of it, but having that liquidity or having that financial safety, that's freedom. It is freedom. You know, and actually, my dad said my dad wanted me to become anything but a lawyer. Sorry, Megan. <laughs> it's okay. And I'll tell you why, because to him, you could be a doctor anywhere in the world. And that gave you freedom. But I think one of the interesting lessons he taught you is the lesson of reinvention. And when I've heard your career, right, you started out in Miami in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And very different situation than it is today. And then you reinvented yourself in the 90s and the 2000s and today. So let's talk about practicing medicine in the 80s. Okay. What what was it like? Because it's very different than today. Uh, You got paid for what you did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you were asking i think you had asked me earlier how do you make money in medicine yeah, that and, was gonna be my follow-up question how do you ask, do it you know like picking another profession that's how you make money in medicine <laughs> well, nowadays now was that the case in the 80s no no and 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 this is where listen in the 80s there was fee for service okay all right so basically it was very laser fair economics when it came to medicine you charge what you wanted, right? And then, and we're in the 70s, and then people came to you or not. When insurance got in it, right, you basically have a contract with an insurance company that says, I will accept that I get paid $100 for an office visit. 
And what I get from signing up with Blue Cross and Blue Shield is that their huge number of patients that are part of that network can now come to you. Got it. All right, so that's okay. how medicine had changed. But was that happening in the 80s? It was happening to some degree, but the reimbursement was a lot higher. So let me give you an example. I am a gastroenterologist. In the 80s, people that went into GI, they would call it scoping for dollars. When you did a colonoscopy. Oh, wow. Yeah, because you would get, for a colonoscopy, you'd get $3,000 back then. You, what do you and think you didn't have to wait for it, I'm assuming. No. What do you think we get paid now? I don't want to know. $284. <laughs> that's why doctors are bitter. And actually, and America needs to look at this. And that's why physicians are retiring and quitting medicine at the highest rate. Right? I, you know my politics, but my politics aside, uh, I went to, it wasn't even a fundraiser. I went to a meeting with Pete Buttigieg, who's running for president. And like a lot of the, the Democratic um, candidates, he believes that there should be a Medicare option. And my question was, what are you going to do if everybody chooses that option? Right. All right? Because where are you going to get the physicians and nurses if a lot of doctors do not join Medicare? So physicians are a commodity that we are losing. So what's going to happen in the future, right, when there aren't enough people going into medical school and becoming doctors and physicians? Nobody thinks about that. But anyway, so yeah, I reinvented yeah. myself because... First of all, I had a lot of other interests. Um, I like to talk, I like to lecture, and I love research. So something that financially was very viable, and this was in the middle of the AIDS epidemic, something very necessary was to do research and to be able to bring medications out to public. The FDA does not approve a medicine unless it has been clinically tried in the correct population. Now, now, just take a step back for a second. So during the AIDS epidemic, yeah. you were on the front line. Yes. You were dealing with people walking into the hospital and dying hours later. We had, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, I would say that I had two patients dying, on the average of two patients dying a day. A day. Wow. Um, and that doesn't count as how many were gravely ill. So, so getting into the research was a necessity yes. because these you you were trying to save people, Correct. just trying to give them an extra day. Correct. I, I didn't get into research because of the finance of it. Um, it. It definitely balanced things out, but I did it like most of us did it because something needed to be done. We, we didn't have anything to treat people with, and that's where research started. So, you know, doctors have reinvented themselves by doing concierge practices, mm -hmm. by working for HMOs. And, and this is where people don't necessarily understand the economics of being a doctor. So reimbursement has gone down, right? We're working the same, but we're getting paid more. And nobody wants to hear that because nobody really wants to hear their doctor who's driving a Mercedes saying that they're not making enough money. Right. But who the hell is going to stay in a job if they keep cutting your wages? I'll tell you who physicians who have been taught to just take it and take it and take right. it. The Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath, right? So where, money, where the money is in medicine is in the laboratories and the x-rays and the ancillary services. Okay. So and, and surgical centers. And surgical well. centers. That's what I mean. But I mean, yes. So what happens, Kaiser happens. And what Kaiser is, 
is one big all-encompassing entity, all right, mm -hmm. where they make money from the labs, they make money from the x-rays, they make money from doing the procedures. They don't make money from the office visits to the doctors. So therefore, the income that comes from those ancillary services can offset the doctor's salaries. And it sounds like then in private practice, a lot of doctors are sort of their own mini version of that. No. No? They're no. not doing the meeting with the patients, but yet doing research on the side. Oh, research, yes. Or doing, or yeah, speaking, or right. owning a surgical that, center. Well, you, you can own a surgical center, or you can own a lab with many other doctors, but there are a lot of regulations that prohibit you, all right, from doing that because there's something called the Stark Laws so that physicians don't overuse inappropriately some of those services. If you own the lab, what's going to keep a doctor from ordering a million labs that aren't necessary? Well, regulation, right? So Which is good. Which is good, absolutely. There are people that have been absolutely, you know, misused, you know, and, and, and abused Medicare and things like that. Now, one of the things, sort of shifting gears here a bit, as we think about doctors and how they make money, is because the medicine career path takes so much education, I've always felt bad for doctors because in preparing for retirement, you guys are way behind everybody, are. right? I mean, you think about it, the average American college student graduates at 22, and technically they can start funding retirement at that point. But most doctors are close to 30, and if they specialize, yeah, here's, they're here's, in their mid-30s. Right, so here's here's my educational path. Four years of college, four years of medical school, three years of internal medicine residency. So you're 29 and, at that and point. And two years of fellowship. So 31. Right, and when, I, when you become an intern, all right, you're sitting down, right? Because I want you to hear yeah. this. Because you're not. I don't want you to faint. So <laughs> when when you are, when I was an intern uh, at the University of Miami, mm -hmm. and again, this was the olden days. <laughs> I was getting paid eighteen thousand dollars a year as an intern. Sure, that was nineteen, you know, eighty three or whatever. Nowadays, an intern. I was just talking to an ophthalmology resident. He's making sixty thousand dollars. But that's the equivalent of 18000 grown out. It is. I mean, come on. They live in the Bay Area. $60,000 $60, in the Bay Area. It's not getting far. Doesn't It doesn't even get you out of Whole Foods, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're not even going to Whole you're Foods. You're not going to Whole Foods. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. We end up not only behind the eight ball, but you end up with a lot of debt. Probably the debt now of, of a doctor graduating is somewhere around half a million dollars I would think and easily. if doctors are starting later and have all this debt the one thing that is sort of challenging as we propel forward in a career path is they've got to work longer in order to financially retire correct and is that a good thing or is that challenging from a from a treating well, the public standpoint well that's not a good thing I mean your your sharpness your efficiency everything declines as we get older all right, so you don't necessarily want an 80-year-old surgeon operating on you with shaky hands, right? Correct. So there's there's a balance because experience plays into the wisdom of a physician. So probably a 70-year-old, 75-year-old doctor that's an internist is still going to be a pretty damn good doctor. All right, but come on, who really wants to work to that age? Actually, a lot of doctors do. I was going to say, doctors and lawyers, yeah. they never really retire. They just keep on going. Yeah. Yeah. And it to you know, as, as much as those career paths are respected in society, 
they are hard career paths to build wealth in. Yes. For a variety of reasons. Yes. And I think both the legal practice and the medical practice are going through changes now. Yeah. Let me let me tell you something. Um, I, don't, I haven't shared this with many people. So I changed my practice and stopped doing a lot of GI, which paid more and did a lot of HIV. And, you know, I was like the big doctor in Orange County and had another doctor working for me and all the staff. And then... Um, one of the, the only smart, one of the few smart things I did <laughs> in my life was buy a house at the bottom of the market in Laguna Beach that yes. went up. But one day I really cried with my accountant when I found, when we finally added it up. And what I had made over the past five years had been exactly what I had taken out of my house to fund my practice. Wow. So basically I was working for free. And this is where a doctor needs to be realistic, all right? Because at the end of the day, we have to take care of ourselves. And altruism is great, right. all right? But charity begins at home, you know? And you really have to take care of yourselves. And I did not do that, yeah. you know, in the beginning of my career. So and I, listen, I don't regret having taken care of HIV, that people. That was like an aha moment for me. But I, it, it could, I could have done it more smartly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an important lesson to yeah. know. But yet, you know... If you think about your career, you've also gotten to do a lot of fun stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, let's... And it's not over, by the way. It's not over. No, okay. this is not a retirement podcast yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that you're retiring. Absolutely um, not. But, but let's... Yet to come. You know, as you've sort of built these multiple areas of interest, right? Some are profitable, some you do for fun. One of the things that I think you do for fun and for passion is being on TV. Yes. I, I don't think it's the most profitable part no, of what I, you do. but I did it to, to make it profitable. I mean, there have been, I've, I've missed the bullseye by very little. I mean, I've had contracts with major networks for TV shows that never got on, you know, that could have been very profitable. So there are a lot of doctors that are now trying to be celebrity doctors. And again, that is a very low yield proposition because not everybody can be Travis Stork or Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz. Those guys are there. You know, you're not going to be that person anymore. But you have a lot of physicians that make a lot of money um, spreading their expertise via other means. Maybe podcasts, books, you know, is a, is a big way, you know. So that's where, listen, I love to do this. I love to talk. I love to lecture. Right. And that sort of, and you know, and I have an ego and I love to be on camera and pontificate. So as you think about what you want to do in the public space, is there any trend out there that you're seeing or things that you're concerned about in healthcare that inspires you as you continue to evolve beyond, you know, your diabetes books and, and yes, being on and TV? As I evolve, and God, really, Megan, you're like the Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> <laughs> or the Barbara Walters. Oh, I'm Barbara. With, right? Yes. You know, Barbara Walters was known for making everybody cry. Are you going to cry now? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I almost did earlier. No, but you know, you sort of reveal uh, certain things where I know that my path is leading me and I've just had to surrender to it is the importance of the mind-body connection. Tell me more. Uh, well, like we were doing with dieting. We're talking about dieting or losing yep. weight. Until your mind is balanced, your body's not going to be balanced. All right, the importance of being in a healthy mental space to prevent illness. All right, a lot of illness is caused by excessive cortisone production, 
which it can lead you to obesity and diabetes and stress and that all comes from mental stress so there's disease mm -hmm. but I also think part of the reason that we're unhealthy in this country is because we have dis-ease mm. all right we're not at ease we live every moment with stress and trying to get on that gerbil wheel so there's a great book called uh, the blue zones you ever heard of it no I haven't so blue I, I recommend it it's super easy reading and it's probably like 10 years old and it looks at the places in the world centers that have the highest percentage of people that are over 100 years old ah, and okay. see what they had in common one of them is here in Loma Linda California believe it or not uh, Yokohama Japan a couple of places in Central America and Italy well most of these people they're not vegetarian. I mean, oh, is this the study where they look at gut health? That's something else. Okay. All right. Lots of nuts. What all these people have in common? Some are mm -hmm. Buddhists. Loma Linda are Seventh Day Adventists. Mm. Right. There's Catholics. What they do is everybody takes time in their day or in their week. All right. To go inward. Whether you call it meditation, whether you call it prayer, whether you call it, you know, Tai Chi. Yep you stabilize your your mental start your mental status and and that's one of the big things that i think lets people live longer and i think that's a nice tie to the, how we started this conversation about longevity yeah is that really there are things we can do with our health to to create longevity but that there is something that's far more spiritual and as you build your longevity these are the things you should be looking for absolutely um, and when, all right, let's take eating. All right, how, how many times do we binge eat because of stress? All, all the, the time. time. <laughs> exactly, all the time. Pass the chips. All the time. Now start yeah. thinking of that binge eating as, as if you were an addict. Yeah. All right, yeah. and you need, and you're jonesing. And you do what? You shoot up. Well, you shoot up with a bag of Cheetos. Yeah. You know? And, and that is the psychological part. So what I've started doing, right, don't freak out, man. <laughs> I've started meditating every morning now. And there are apps for this. I just sit in my little corner. Actually, don't laugh. I'm doing the same thing. And I start meditating, going. you know? And maybe that's why you're accomplishing all these things. So... The health starts at the top of our head and goes down to our toes. Mm -hmm. uh, longevity is something that is great if we live longer in a way that we can appreciate ourselves, the people we love, and our surroundings. And where you come in, I think, very importantly is, can you imagine being 90 or 100 without enough money to sustain yourself or with a support group to help you? It's true. Seriously, I'd rather be dead. So in our final moments, because I don't think I could say that any better, one question for you, a couple questions. What does wealth mean to you? Um, well, the first thing that comes to me is having enough money to be independent, right? And mm -hmm. to be able to do what you wish. All right, that's what wealth means to me in, in the obvious part. Um, but wealth is is something that's more than just money i mean wealth is being able to see the colors of the world right and yeah. enjoy them so that's what wealth at the end of the day is because you're not going to take the money with you you know you're going to be able to 
wealth gives you the opportunity to have experiences. I love that. Wealthy. I love that. So in our final moments, Dr. Jorge, where can people find you and your books? Oh, uh, you can get my books at Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and you can find me at uh, drjorgemd.com, D-R-J-O-R-G-E-M-D, uh, on Instagram and uh, online. Excellent. Well, Jorge, thank you so oh, much for being a guest. Love you. Thank you for joining us on the Wealth Intersection. And if you want to reach out and let us know how we're doing, feel free to reach us at www.thewealthintersection.com or at Wealth Intersect on Twitter or the Wealth Intersection on Instagram. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Wealth Intersection. Megan Gorman will be back with another program next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then.